you know, it's kind of bogus how the rules, you know, they create their use of force policy and then they vindicate themselves. You know what I'm saying? It's like the yeah. boss creates <laughs> the boss creates a policy and says, oh, I didn't violate it. You know, yeah, like it's, it's bullshit, you know, and that's why we need community control. And we actually need power because that's the only way we can actually see, you know, some justice in these cases. Welcome to Fight Back Radio, a production of FightBackNews.org, taking you to the heart of the people's struggle. I'm your host, Richard Berg, and this week um, our, our episode is about the 50th anniversary uh, conference of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. And we've been talking about this for some time. We've had a number of guests on here on Fight Back Radio who have... Uh, are members of the Alliance from around the country who've promoted this conference and uh, said here on Fight Back Radio, this will be an excellent conference. You should be there. And I was plugging in it as well. I was there. It was at my union hall, the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, we were addressed by uh, Angela Davis, uh, Frank Chapman, uh, Stacy Davis-Gates, the president of the Chicago Teachers Union, and many others. And uh, I, I just want to say that uh, it, you know, all the buildup to it, it, it met, uh, it met the standards, and uh, you know, people came from all over the country. We had at the Friday night rally, uh, I don't know, just probably around 800 people, maybe just under that, more than 700 for sure. And uh, it was good. It was uh, people. There was uh, there was joy. There was celebration, but there was also tears and uh, sadness because of uh, you know people that were there were celebrating uh, their fight for justice, but also, you know, remembering their loved ones who needed justice, who may have been wrongfully incarcerated or killed. And so our guest today, I should have said, is uh, Michael Sampson, who's the co-chair of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. And Michael will recount some of the things that happened there and and talk a little bit about uh, his chapter in Jacksonville and, uh, you know, other things, you know, we'll, we'll talk uh, about many of the things that the Alliance thinks about and we'll give you, uh, you know, how to get in contact with them and things like that. But uh, before we get to the interview, um, this last weekend also marked uh, the largest uh, march for Palestinian rights in uh, uh, Washington, D.C., uh, in the United States uh, history. And... Um, the uh, you know Joe Biden uh, whatever and uh, the both uh, Republicans and Democrats gave fourteen billion dollars to the Israelis to help commit genocide against a people uh, in Palestine and and mostly in Gaza um, and uh, if you listen to our last episode with uh, Hatham Abadeo um, I would I would recommend that if you haven't already because it talks about this very issue and goes into depth about it but. Um, this is uh, center stage right now, so I'm, I, people should, uh, uh, we should celebrate. We had a big march in Washington, and they're happening around the world, but they're not stopping. I mean, you need to uh, go out to a march and support uh, the Palestinian people and their resistance uh, uh, to uh, the Zionist uh, uh, oppression. And, uh, you know, so I encourage you to, to contact U- USPCN, uh, the United States uh, Palestinian Community Network, which uh, USPCN.org, and uh, find them there either on social media too, and uh, um, you know get get involved in this. Also, you can follow it on uh, Fight Back News, you know news and views from the people's struggle, and so we encourage you to do that as well. Um, but now I'm going to talk. Uh, you know, I want to give you our interview with Michael Sampson to talk a little bit about the Alliance Conference. So here's Michael Sampson. So I'm here with uh, Michael Sampson, who's uh, the national co-chair of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. And our Fight Back Radio listeners know we've been had a number of guests from this organization on here. We've been promoting uh, their uh, conference, which just happened uh, November 3rd, 4th, and 5th in uh, Chicago at the Chicago Teachers Union Hall. And so, uh, you know, Michael, welcome to Fight Back Radio. Thank you, Richard. Uh, big fan of Fight Back Radio. Uh, happy to finally be on and um, talk to you. Um, really admire all the great guests and all the great work you've done since you started this. Well, well, thank you, thank you for the shout out. I appreciate that. So, um, well, let's let's dig into it. Let's talk about the, you just had a big uh, 
um, you know, convention in, uh, here in Chicago. <clears throat> You're from Jacksonville, Florida, I should mention. Um, but uh, this is the 50th anniversary of the founding of the National Alliance. And could you talk a little bit about maybe about some of the legacy and the, the, the origins of the National Alliance, but then also, you know, what it looks like now and, uh, you know, maybe, uh, uh, you know, the then and now kind of uh, situation, what's different, what's the same? I'm 100%. I think uh, NARPA was uh, founded, um, as you said, 50 years ago. Um, originally, I believe, as the Free Angela Davis Defense Committee. Um, then it became uh, a committee designed to free all political prisoners. Um, one of the more notable ones being our uh, executive director, Frank Chapman, um, a true legend out here. You know, he, I know he's been on your show before, but um, widely admired amongst the movement and, uh, and, and really amongst us. Um, particularly the younger activists, I would say for sure. Um, learning from him has been a treat. Um, started back then, I think, as a mass uh, defense organization to defend the people's movements. And obviously, uh, you know, I read about it and, you know, talk to different elders and read about the stories from, you know, Charlene Mitchell and the stories that Frank would tell me about the various uh, comrades, Lennox Hines, uh, all those um you know, very, uh, uh, famous and, um, kind of almost, you know, mythical, uh, black kind of revolutionary activists you hear about really starting this work and really doing it at, at, at a very revolutionary almost time, you know, in which you had a movements emerging, um, from the, you know, following the civil rights, black power movement to women's liberation movement, you know, uh, so many different movements, you know, that they had to be an organization to defend the gains of the movements, but as well as defend the soldiers of that movement. And I think that was uh, formed the, the creation of the National Alliance Against Racism and Political Repression. And in 2019 is when we were uh, refounded again at the uh, in the halls of the great uh, Chicago Teachers Union. Um, All right. <laughs> in Jackson, in uh, Chicago. Um, and, um, you know. We had, uh, we've had, uh, two other conferences since then, um, to really build our organization. I think, you know, from 2019 to 2023, we've seen, you know, it's, it's just been so quite impressive to see the advances, um, in the people's movement that, uh, a lot of our branches and affiliate organizations, uh, organize out of. And the purpose of this conference was to bring forth all those different um, stories about the history and how it informs us of the, how our past informs our future and the lessons we learn from the past to, to, you know, have a better orientation on how we organize for, uh, black liberation and total defense of all liberation movements that are fighting, you know, for the rights of people to, you know, live, you know, and pretty much it. So, you know, this conference was very, was, was awesome. And, um, you know, I think, you know, uh, the National Alliance, when we first started, it was, you know, a fragmented group of different organizations in different cities coming together. And, you know, just four years later, we're almost at 18 to 20 plus branches and affiliate organizations in that many different cities uh, from the East Coast all the way in the deep south of Florida to Seattle, the Pacific Northwest, New York, uh, the Midwest, obviously, with Chicago being kind of like a leader um, in our organization of kind of showing us the path um, to fighting for community control, but also fighting to free those unjustly incarcerated, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, um, Los Angeles, you know, we're everywhere. Um, let, let me ask you, so then, uh, I mean, if you go back to the origins, uh, you know, it was uh, the Committee to Free Angela Davis and All Political Prisoners was the origin of it. But then... Uh, it was involved in, uh, you know, whatever, the Wilmington 10 in North Carolina and, uh, you know, Leonard Pelletier with Native American. And, uh, you know, you're right. We have had Frank Chapman on here and he, he went through some of the lists of, uh, people that, uh, the alliance has helped over the years get out of jail or, you know, uh, whatever different things. And, uh, is that something that you still do or fighting against, uh, you know, uh, people that are wrongfully put in jail or movement people that are being repressed. Uh, does that look pretty much the same as it did then? Or how is it? What's the difference? Uh, particularly, I mean, I think, you know, what we're seeing now, particularly since you saw the, you know, the George Floyd Rebellion of 2020 is a rise uh, in repression towards 
uh, the people's movements and the black liberation movement. So um, that's something that we still do in terms of defending um, and supporting, you know, different organizations um, and, you know, uh, movements, our own branches and affiliate organizations that are being targeted and repressed. Uh, the Tampa Five being a prime example, um, those student activists are part of the National Students of Democratic Society, as well as um, uh, union workers like Chrisley. I mean, uh, you know, these are folks that um, are with Come on, Chrisley Carpio. Chrisley Carpio, from the Tampa yes. Tampa Five, yeah. Yes, um, you know, awesome, awesome activists and uh, friend. I mean, we're trying to um, defend the Tampa Five and, you know, mobilizing our resources and our different branches and affiliate, affiliate organizations in the over dozen 16, 18 cities we're in to really support the Tampa Five to uh, call folks to the streets. And, you know, we are uniting with the call in December to put folks in the streets um, around the Tampa Five's court, first initial so, so court th- date. So this is an issue where students were, uh, and I think many of our Fight Back Radio listeners know this because we've talked about it before, but for those that are new, th- this is a, a group of uh, five students from the University of South Florida who were attacked by the police uh, while they were protesting uh for um, uh, uh, diversity and more uh, black enrollment in the University of South Florida and to preserve uh, programs uh, that uh, promote diversity. And uh, when the police attacked them, rather than uh, you know having any kind of reprimands put on those officers or the people making the de- command decisions, they, uh, they charged uh, the, the five of the students uh, who became the Tampa Five, and they faced very serious uh, felony charges, I, I believe. Am I right? Right, right. Um, you know, and they were uh, obviously, you know, protesting um, like, you know, student or student actors have the right to do against, you know, this agenda that we've seen here in Florida with Governor Ron DeSantis uh, trying to ban diversity and equity inclusion programs on campus, as well as going after uh, African-American diversity studies, you know, they were protesting against that, uh, demanding their administration and their president, real law, stand up to DeSantis and stand up for black and brown students. And they were met with, you know, a beating by USF uh, PD. Um, and they're met with these bogus charges. So, you know, we're um, supporting um, the efforts uh, by the Defend the Tampa Five and the committee to defend the Tampa Five to get them free, um, to get them justice. But as well, other, you know, incidents, I believe the Uhuru Five, um, other, you know, we passed a resolution um, at our NARPA conference in support of them and support of... Um, Could you say a little bit about who they are, the Uhuru Five? So they were, uh, they're individuals who are being targeted uh, by the uh, Department of Justice for um, so-called... Uh, um, you know, you know, support of Russia, you know, this part of the whole um, new kind of Cold War right now, or whatever we call it, is happening between the United States and Russia, in which uh, any uh, body who, um, you know, uh, it, it criticizes U.S. foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy, particularly towards more um, aggression towards Russia, you're labeled as pro-Russian. Well, obviously, you know, the Huru Five are uh, black solid, black uh liberation activists who are being targeted currently by the Department of Justice. So we support them as they have supported um, the Tampa Five and others. Um, these are just some examples of, you know, these new um, these new folk, these new cases, these new stories that are being created, these new um, individuals facing repression that is happening under this current political climate, which is why uh, the National Alliance, you know, now more than ever, it needs to be strengthened and we need to continue to grow. And I think this conference, uh, this 50th anniversary conference was a good um, mesh point to keep building and to keep growing, given the political climate we are facing in the future. Uh, we actually had a, a panel, particularly on repression, um, led by um one of our uh organizers and leaders with the uh, Atlanta National Alliance um they had been involved in uh different protests to stop the cop, you know the stop cop city movement and supporting those efforts for those folks down in Atlanta been doing that you had speakers from the stop cop city movement Miss Kiana Jones who spoke about 
the repression that they're seeing in Atlanta. We had, you know, obviously a, a friend of ours, Carlos Montes, um, um, uh, you know, a Chicano, um, you know, peace and solidarity activist who was talking about the repression that he faced. Uh, we had um, one of the co-chairs in the march in the RNC talking about the repression that they're facing. Um, to even get permits to have a rally and protest at the March on the RNC, as well as Lada Rodriguez, a part of the Tampa Five. I mean, you know, we um, bring together all these different cases and these different individuals affected by repression to to show that we can learn from each other and learn the strategies that they're trying to keep us down. How do we build together and build our organizational capacity to really have an effective organism that could fight you know, and make sure that these charges can't be kept up. I mean, it's one thing if, you know, we could uh, do a solidarity protest in one or two cities. And, you know, if we can do it in 25 cities, I mean, I think, and, and that's, I think, what we've been able to do through all the different NARPA affiliate organizations and all the organizations that SDS organizes with. I mean, you've seen so many different cities show out and show support for the Tampa Five. Well, I think you saw that a lot also with the George, in the aftermath of George Floyd. I mean, the 100%. Alliance, and the National Alliance network. call for... Yeah. Yes. And I think NARPA, I mean, you know, NARPA in 2020, I mean, we, and uh, us, and I believe it was uh, Bayon, oh no, it's not Bayon, it was the um, uh, Internet, ILFP, I'm butchering those um the uh, Filipinos, as we call them, uh, our Filipino comrades. They call the National Day of Action on May 30th. ILPS. ILPS, yes. Like International League of People's Struggles. International League I... of People. I, I knew it was that, and I just, <laughs> man, yeah. I'm, I just, I, I've been tied tongue with uh, acronyms the past 24 hours. But um, that's cool. That's cool. There's but, a lot of them in our movement. Yeah. <laughs> NARPER, yeah. Yeah. But May 30th, uh, 2020, it was us and them who called this week of action a day of action to put folks on the street. And that's when we saw hundreds of thousands of people in the country. And I'm not saying NARPER was solely responsible for hundreds of thousands of people hitting the streets, but NARPER was a part of hundreds of thousands of people hitting the streets. And in many cities like Chicago, Milwaukee, Twins, we led, you know, Jacksonville, we led those militant demonstrations and putting people on the streets. And, you know, it's obvious that the more people you put on the streets, the more folks who are activated by this movement and you're able to, you know, build organization with those folks, you recruit more activists, that's how you build a movement and that's how we challenge um, the status quo, um, getting more new folks into this movement. And I think since 2020, this conference shown we've grown um, by at least half a dozen cities in terms of new branches and affiliate organizations. And I think that is a, a tried and true example of why organizing works, you know, and why um, NARPA as an organization is currently flourishing and I think will continue to flourish. What was a uh... Okay, so we just had the conference, you know, last weekend. But uh, um, what you know, what were the goals going into the conference, and do you, do you feel like you accomplished them? Yeah, obviously, yes, yes. Obviously, the goals, you know, obviously to have a high turnout. I mean, um, I think our first night rally, I believe we had maybe seven, eight hundred or so. I, I think it was a really good turnout, and we had over um, well over six or so registered. I mean, it was we hit all our benchmarks in terms of. Um, getting folks out, getting folks mobilized, you know, and, and we had general goals as an organization. And I think we accomplished all those in terms of getting folks there, um, having a successful conference um, and all that jazz. I mean, uh, you know, I, th- I think personally, like the metric I had um, was how do we um, as a national organization um, bring folks together to consolidate this national organization. Because I think it's very easy in the movement and in organizing to start something, you know? I think starting something is very easy. It's fresh, it's new excitement, you know, you're kind of jazzed up. Um, and I'm not, so I, when, when I talk, I, I, I feel like, uh, so I feel like I've been an organizer for 12 years or so. I, um, and I feel like in this, this, the 12 years I've been an organizer is like times four. You know what I'm saying? I've, I, I've lived through a recession, uh, 9-11. Uh, I didn't live through that, but well, I, I did live through that. But in my organizing career, I saw Trayvon Martin. I see Mike Brown. I see rebellions. I see, you know, um, 
I've seen this explosion of experiences, you know what I'm saying? So I've seen a lot in my 12 years, particularly within the Black liberation movement and seeing kind of this upsurge, you know, and kind of um, with organizations I was a part of, you know, being a co-founder of the Dream Defenders in 2012 and the Trayvon Martin movement, seeing kind of this embryonic restart of sorts. Um, and, you know, that being said, I, I said uh, all that I had to say is, I've seen a lot of organizations start up and pop up, you know, and they last for six months and they die and last for a year and they die. And um, the biggest part of any organization is sustainability, you know, because at the end of the day, if you build it, they will come, you know, like if you build it, the masses will come. If you're fighting um, in the community and you're fighting um, the just struggle and fighting for police accountability, fighting against police crimes, fighting against unjust incarceration. You know, the people need organization at the end of the day. They don't just need platitudes. They need ways for them to channel their anger and frustration into tangible action. And that's important, you know, to all of us and particularly to me. And this conference was a part of making sure as a national organization, we are um, consolidated and building and growing and have a program. And I think uh, this conference showed that we are knocking all of those benchmarks and knocking them out of the park. Um, the fact that we've grown in these various cities, the fact that, and maybe we'll talk about this later, I mean, we had over 16, 18 resolutions um, that were passed. And I always feel like with any conference res resolutions and debate, that is a healthy sign of uh, democratic participation within the organization. And uh, you know, just very proud of what um, NARPA has accomplished in the different affiliates, but just knowing that we have so much more to go and we have um, so much more to win um, and do. And, um, you know, I think it just makes me very optimistic about the future, you know, especially in times like seem so, so messed up. You know, I think um, the organizing that we're doing in NARPA and the seeing the different what the different Affiliate organizations like Bayon and the Knock Bayon, National SDS, the Anti-War Committee, Committee type, seeing what they're doing and the positive things that they're doing as well. These are all um, organizations that are affiliated, that are affiliated with, with the, the National Alliance. Yep. And seeing, you know, um, CPUSA, like all those groups, all affiliates of NARPA, I mean, it's just good to see um, such a broad tent that, we are, that we've created and how we're kind of moving forth in actions, not necessarily um, perfect ideals. Yeah, I mean, it struck me. I mean, I was there uh, for the most of it. I, w I left to go to a different conference of Teamsters later. But uh, the um, besides the sheer numbers that you're talking about that uh, that showed up, uh, which was impressive, um, I think you could see people that were sharing stories with each other that they felt empowered to see the the magnitude of the organization uh, from the different cities. But I think people were also learning from each other's experiences and networking and making experiences like that. Um, I want to ask you a question about the Alliance also, though. It's uh, So the Alliance is uh, consciously uh, a multinational uh, black-led organization. And so, uh, so you, you know, I was there. There was you know, whatever, it's very diverse, all, all nationalities of people, at least from what I could see. And, uh, um, but that, uh, the, it, it's put a special, uh, emphasis on, uh, on being black led. Could you explain, uh, why it's structured that way and how that works, uh, as an organization nationally? Uh, well, I mean, it's sort of like a lot of the branches and, and branches that we have within the national alliance. I mean, we are black led left, um, like uh mass defense organization and obviously we know why it's you know black led is we fighting for black liberation and leadership in the black liberation movement is an important question and um we we don't just fight for black leadership we fight for black working class leadership um within the um national liberation movement or the black liberation movement <clears throat> and you know i think it's obvious why it's important you know i um but particularly given the fact that there's been an absence of that type of national um, black-led organization. I mean, obviously you have the legacy organizations like NAACP, Urban League, that aren't necessarily, you know, in the same uh, in the same vein, you know, as as a national alliance, you know. And, um, you know, obviously those, those forces are a part of the black liberation movement in, you know, different, um, different areas. 
Um, but the National Alliance seeks to be um, rooted in the black community, um, in the in the neighborhoods that face the most uh, police repression, police brutality, uh, face the most violence. You know, that's what we're um, that's what we're based out of, and that's what we strive to be based out of, and that's where uh, we strive to have our branches be based out of, and. More importantly, our work is based on our work with families most affected by uh, police violence and state repression, state torture, um, any type of state violence. Um, you know, those families being mostly African-American, but also Chicano, Latino and other nationalities. You know, we're not just limited to helping only, you know, black families, but obviously due to the disproportionate way that the state and police go after and kill black people, you know, that's the folks we work with the most. And I think one great thing about the conference, I don't know if you were able to check it out, Richard, is the amount of families we had. We had over, I would be, I feel like I'm being conservative to say we had over 30 or so families, um, you know, folks who have been affected by police brutality, loved ones killed by cops or loved ones um, unjustly incarcerated on trumped up, you know, you know, BS charges by crooked cops or, uh, loved ones who have been killed due to malpractice by the jails, um, due to, you know, Cook County, um, lack of COVID protocols to save folks' lives, like health issues. I mean, those families like coming together, I think is a powerful thing for everyone involved. And, um, um, because they are the lifeblood of our movement. And I think, Every, you know, every, in every branch that we do organize around police crimes and any type of, you know, unjust incarceration, freeing political prisoners, we have to center, we do center the families and fight alongside them for, um, freedom for their loved one, but also knowing, you know, also kind of walking them down, uh, a path of knowing that, you know, what's happening to their loved one is happening to other loved ones, you know? What's happening, you know, and this is all a part of a, a big issue of, of a system that in continuously harms us, which is why we fight uh, for community control of the police and we fight for a better way um, for us to live. No, that's uh, I was there when they read off a lot of the names and clearly I, uh, I think uh, the people were empowered uh, that were there, that, but to see others uh, you know, facing similar circumstances. Um, you've mentioned a few times uh, community control of the police is a key demand or a key th- issue that the alliance is fighting on, or uh, fighting for. And um, let me ask you, because it's uh, you know the same when there's wrongful uh, uh, you know uh, convictions or tortures or, or, or shootings or whatever. Um, you know, it, the, the the nuance of it often varies from place to place, and as you fight for community control uh we you know even i've seen here in chicago we've had great success at moving in that direction and even getting a mayor who's uh been supportive of what we've gotten so far um but that's not true everywhere and uh in fact it's not true very many places uh so um i wanted to ask you uh besides being the the co-chair of the national alliance uh, the local chapter in your city jacksonville florida uh, you're the executive director uh of the Jacksonville uh, Community Action Co- Coalition, all right? Committee. Uh, uh, committee, committee, sorry. No, committee, okay. And uh, so uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, what the, you know, these fights around, uh, 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 you know, whatever, for police accountability and um, community control and working with families and such? What, how does that look like in, in your local area in Jacksonville? Not for sure. I mean, so the, um, yeah, my, not my day job, but. Yeah, so I'm National Alliance co-chair, uh, one of the co-chairs, but I'm also locally um, uh, an organizer with the Jackson Community Action Committee, official title, executive director, even though um, that's for the paperwork. Um, but, um, you know, we were founded in 2017, ironically, after another case of uh, political rep- and police repression with the Jacks Five. And, you know, I think... Jacksonville has a particular history. I'm, I'm from Jacksonville, and I think it's a very important city to the Deep South, and it is in the Deep South in North Florida. And I think a lot of the institutions in Jacksonville, um, you know, in a lot of ways does still mirror uh, politically Jim Crow um, in a lot of ways. I think 
um, you know, we were founded in 2017 to challenge um, the existing kind of status quo of of Jacksonville Sheriff's Office um, acting with impunity in regards to how they treated civilians and black residents here, um, you know, fighting for community control here. And when we was, got started in 2017, you know, and getting involved in this work, you know, and getting deeper, you know, that's when we kind of learned about uh, through practice um, how, you know, excuse my French, how fucked up the South is, you know, I, and you know, for example, Jacksonville is a consolidated city, so it's a county and a city in one. Because they had a something called consolidation in 1968, which essentially diluted the uh, urban core population's political power and added in the rural areas. You know, obviously, you add in the rural areas, you add in the more um, more rural white vote and all that jazz. Um, so that diluted black political power here. It also created a system in which um, there was one police department, that being the sheriff's department. And the sheriff's department, their duties um, are only um, basically, their duties are written in the state law. So um, the sheriff's boss is the governor or the sheriff. The only person that could, you know, really rein in the sheriff is um, the governor um, because, the, you know, the sheriff is a constitutionally elected officer. Which makes it Governor's very difficult. DeSantis, right? Yeah. <laughs> DeSantis. Oh my God! <laughs> well, yeah, so the, you know, and you know, the sheriff here is a guy named T.K. Waters, a black Republican, um, real piece of work, and he he said DeSantis is my boss, and that particularity is interesting. Is is interesting because due to Florida state law, only sheriffs can hire fire police officers. You know, um, I think in other places like a Chicago. Or, or um, other places that has a city police department, um, those powers are all sort of municipal. You know, it's typically, you know, the mayor appoints the police chief. Um, the city council has direct power over the budget, um, hire, fire other police officers. So essentially a campaign for community control is circumventing that back to the people. What they've done here in the South <laughs> is um, circumvent it in a way that makes it um, damn near difficult to get community control because you have to go through it via state law. And also we have a law here called the Law Enforcement Officer Bill of Rights, which is codified in the state law, which basically gives cops so much le extra levels of due process that, you know, if, if they are involved in any type of issue, um, investigation, um, management has to... Police management has to show them all the evidence before they are even uh, interviewed or um, it has to be in a nice lighted room and stuff like that. So these are extra levels um, of uh, BS Jim Crow type of stuff um, that that essentially, you know, allows police in the South, uh, particularly in Florida, to operate with impunity. And it's structured that way. Um, and we already know how it works with gerrymandering of um, districts and whatnot when, you know, the right wing is in power and how that works. But there was still a need to create an organization in the Jacksonville Community Action Community to work with families. So we were created in 2017 and we worked countlessly with different families from those affected by races like vigilanteism to, you know, those affected by police violence, um, those unjustly incarcerated, um, you know, and, and, and we've built a movement here in Jacksonville that has sort of changed a lot of the debate here in Jacksonville, particularly around police accountability and what that looks like. And as well as I think one particular thing I think we're very proud of is the conversation around the city's budget being more politicized, particularly from a context of black political power and influence. Um, for a long time, the Jacksonville city's budget has been allocated in a way that directly affects um, you know, like this tax base in the black neighborhood that historically has funded so much of the uh, development of uh, these more affluent sides of town, you know, not getting its share of resources in regards to budgeted into roads and infrastructure. And this obviously in the Deep South has a racial, not a, maybe a racial, but, a, you know, it's a national oppression component to it, you know, I think because. You have a, a lack of black political representation just to simply advocate 
for that. <clears throat> and they've set it up in such a way that it turns out um, the kind of the establishment having the ability to pick and choose which black candidates, you know, they want to support. You know, but we have had some who are fighters and fighting for police accountability. But, you know, I, I think we formed since 2017 working with families and Right now, we're currently in the midst of a petition drive, a, a petition drive to form a what we're calling a public safety committee. Um, Jacksonville is really the only city um, in major city in Jacksonville without some basic type of um, police oversight board. So obviously, that's not the end goal. But from our analysis, we have to start somewhere and we have to get something in the door and keep organizing around it to make it better. So uh, we have to get 36,000 signatures by 2026, and that's a goal that we're fighting for, and I think we're going to get. Um, it's a long-term goal, but that's just how it is. You know, I think uh, they make it more difficult for us to organize um, in a place like Jacksonville, in the Deep South, and it's just it's historically been a very repressive environment for movements. But, you know, times do change, and I think the Democrats, Demographically and whatnot, Jacksonville in the next few years um, will be a majority um, non-white. In regards to the black population, Asian, Arab population, Jacksonville has a huge Arab population. I think top five, actually Palestinian population on the East Coast, I believe. And one of the biggest in Florida, for sure. Um, you know, I, I think is uh, Jacksonville is a city that's changing. And I think it's because the movement is, is forcing it to change. Let me circle back with a little bit here. Cause you've talked a couple, you mentioned a couple of times about working with families. Um, you know, could you give an example about, uh, you know, something that might've come up and how, how you dealt with, I mean, you, you describe, um, a culture and, and a, you know, political system in, in, in the South that, uh, is, in, is very repressive. But, uh, if, you know, if there's a family who's, uh, you know, had somebody wrongfully convicted or, or shot or whatever, um, you, you know, you, you, you have to deal with that under the conditions that you have and even while, while you fight for change. And so, uh, could you, could you talk a little bit about how you approach that and, you know, what, 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 uh, uh, what successes or you know, difficulties you faced? I think one of those families we did a lot of work with is, uh, the family of Jamie Johnson. Uh, Jamie Johnson was a, uh, uh, FAMU, which is a historically black college in Tallahassee, Florida. He was visiting family here in Jacksonville. He was like 21 or 20 at the time. Uh, he was pulled over by a member of the uh, JSO gang unit for a seatbelt violation. Um, there was a scuffle and Jamie ended up getting killed by this officer, Jose Garriga. Uh This was December 2019. We immediately connected with the family, had a rally in front of the police station. Um, and it was, you know, I, you know, we really pushed, you know, we, you know, it was kind of one of those situations in which, uh, particularly when you're working with a family and you're kind of dealing with the legal process in itself. I mean, it's just a tough situation because the family is dependent on the same state attorney, uh, or the, uh, or the same state attorney that, that we have that refuses to prosecute killer cops, um, that family is depending on that same office to do their jobs and investigate to find the evidence to prove that this, you know, cop, you know, um, murdered someone. And obviously, you know, we did very different stuff. We did like community canvases with the family, um, you know, to help, you know, find, you know, witnesses to testify to the police officer's behavior, um, erratic behavior in the neighborhood and whatnot. Um, rallies and whatnot, petitions. Um, and it was kind of interesting because it was like the George Floyd rebellion, um, you know, caught every city. Um, and every city was pretty much, you know, historic protest. I think what it also did was, you know, cases like, uh, a George Floyd, like a Jamie Johnson, you know, um, there's another family worked with, um, Miss Giovanni Kemp, her son, Reginald Boston, was 20 years old. And he was killed in a SWAT bus, even though he was unarmed. Um, and they refused to release any body cam footage, stuff like that to her. Um, yeah, a few different families, particularly in the year of 2020 before George Floyd that we were working with. And essentially what happened when George Floyd's happened, all these stories became George Floyd. 
Because there is George Floyd's in every city. I mean, what happened to George Floyd isn't just um, isolated to Minneapolis. It's every city. It's just sometimes it's not on camera. Sometimes it's just shooting. He's not a choking. But people are being lynched and killed by the cops. So worked with that family. And what that actually led to during the 2020 um, rebellion for us here is uh, protests and pushing us to actually push the state attorney and the uh, Jacksonville Sheriff's Office to release body cam footage for the first time. They had had body cams for three, four years and basically refused to release them, um, which is, you know, they would only release them when they felt like it and obviously heavily redacted. Now, they're still redacting and it's not perfect. And they go back and forth, obviously, on a policy. But, you know, that was the first of its kind that we were able to actually fight and advocate and demand for body cam footage video to be released and for it to be released more regularly. So now within Jacksonville, body cam footage gets released within a day or two, like automatically. And that's something that was much different five years ago. They would hold on to that. Now, has that translated to more killer cops being uh, prosecuted? In some aspects, you know, we still have a long ways to go, you know, because I think it just varies due to the different use of force policies, all that jazz that we have to maneuver through, which is why we need community control, because we can we can um, take part in the policymaking process. So it isn't just them creating their own rules, because, you know, it's kind of bogus how the rules, you know, they create their use of force policy and then they vindicate themselves. You know what I'm saying? It's like the yeah. boss creates <laughs> the boss creates a policy and says, "Oh, I didn't violate it," you know. Yeah, like it's, it's bullshit, you know. And that's why we need community control, and we actually need power because that's the only way we can actually see, you know, some justice in these cases and, and well, a lot let, more. Let's of these talk cases. about that a minute. I mean, it's uh, so. Oh, I mean, you you describe a a, a community that uh, you know faces national oppression and. Uh, is victimized by national oppression and racism, and uh, um, and, and it's impressive the things that you say that you're fighting back and and you know getting them to release body cam footage and different others early you know the things that you've won under very difficult circumstances. But I think you're right. I mean, it seems to me that uh, uh, you know black people need to have power, and and uh, in this in the south, that's not just true in Jacksonville. That's true throughout. United States, but uh, uh, but it's true, especially I think in the um, in, in the South, and uh, um, but there's you know there's this issue of uh, uh, you know voter repression, black political repression that exists beyond you know it's the police for sure, but it's not just that it's it's the whole the whole structure. Could you talk a little bit about that? And uh, you know I know the alliance has made some statements about it, but what's the what's the alliance's position? On uh, uh, you know, on this kind of voter repression and black repression in the South and and throughout the country. Yeah. So one of the resolutions we did pass was a resolution in support of voting rights um, against the fight back against the repression we've seen from right wing back legislators, like in Florida. Um, you know, trying to repress our vote, um, repressing the black vote, um, and also I, part of that resolution was you know acknowledging that that DC you know fighting for DC statehood um and the fact that DC is a majority African American city that has no political representation within Congress or anything and they actually um you know one of the DC members um talked about how you know local community activists were actually instrumental in passing a um, a policy that dealt with um that dealt with uh, how certain acts were treated and decriminalizing um, certain and so certain acts to make it so that there was less folks being incarcerated and how uh, Republican-led Congress um, essentially uh, said, okay, your policy is doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> you know, you, you as a city, you have your own elections, but who cares? Because it's a bad policy, um, you know, you know, back to blue. So, um, you know, I, I, that was part of the resolution that was passed. I think what particularly what I say what we saw here in in Florida was, you know, Governor Ron DeSantis, um, who is a big, you know, piece of work. Um, I hate that man more than any politician I've hated, particularly because I've lived, you know, through, you know, what he's doing, you know, and right. you've experienced his intimately. Yeah, very yeah, intimately. Yeah. Um, so one of the laws that um, 
you know, you know, obviously he's passed a lot of horrible laws. But one of the things he did last legislative session, not this year's session, but last year during election year, was you know every, I believe every ten years we have redistricting, um, and basically the Florida legislature draws the congressional maps. Um, it used to be, and not to say that it matters to be a Democrat or Republican or whatever, but I think Florida has twenty three congressional districts. I think, I think, I think before. Before he vetoed the maps, it was like, you know, I think it was like 16, it was like 14 Republican, maybe eight Democrats. And then afterwards, it was, it was like, it was like only like three or four or five congressional districts in Florida. And one of those congressional, that Democrat congressional districts and not, one of those being that was taken away was the only black congressional district that we had in North Florida. It, it was a quote unquote minority access district, a district that would make sure that black voters could elect a candidate of their choice. And that was taken away. Um, so for the first time since the 1990s, Jacksonville and the black residents had no political representation in Congress. Um, the political representative in Congress was actually a, a right wing Trump supporter from Nassau County, which is like a more rural district up north. And for some reason, he represented the black community of Jacksonville due, due to this redistricting. You know, what does that mean? It means less black political uh, voice um, in Congress and representation. And, you know, part of the task of part of these processes of gerrymandering. And, you know, I think when I was a younger uh, activist, I didn't really pay as much attention in, in voting. And um, I think a lot of these like voting rights and stuff because every obviously the two parties have its different you know the two-party system is is flawed and you know we want something greater um more a you know a people's party of sorts but um it does matter because directly you see why votes happen the way they do um why certain laws are passed because um there is a conscious white supremacist right-wing attack on the right to vote for black people um, and the right to vote for working class people and all marginalized people um, because they know, you know, that, that you know, th these communities are organizing themselves and gaining more political power, um, building more political organizations. So the best way to take away that power is to take away their right to vote and their voice. And so I think that's why, you know, we've made it a priority as the National Alliance to support struggles for voting rights and making sure that right-wing um, repressive legislators aren't taking away um, our right to vote and the right to vote for black folks. Um, not just in the Deep South, but all over the country, but primarily in the Deep South, because that's where you see uh, a huge amount of these attacks coming from these legislators. Let me, let me ask you, let me pivot to a different direction here a little bit. I know... Um I know you have an, a background in uh, organized labor, and um, the, you know, many of the alliance chapters in, throughout the North, and especially I know here in Chicago, the um, you know they 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 view their relationships with uh, certain unions and pr the progressive unions uh, that are willing to stand up and fight racism more overtly as very important and key uh, to some of the changes for community control of the police and other things. And, uh, um, in the South, you know, it's, it's, uh, unions are weaker. Um, and, uh, um, you know, the, most of the states in, in the South are right to work states. And so I was wondering, what's your approach, uh, in Jacksonville and in chapters in the South, uh, to working with organized labor? Is it pretty much the same as the North or is, do you have to, is, uh, is, is are they a factor in what you're trying to do? I mean, I think obviously the North, I think. I think in the north, um, places like Chicago and, uh, you know, Minneapolis, where we have, you know, powerful, uh, strong branches, you know, I think those places obviously have a longer history of organizing and really, uh, a, 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 really having organized labor there. And, you know, awesome progressive active, activists who are union members. Uh, who also support community organizing. I, I think those places where we've, you know, I, it's obvious in Chicago without organized labor, ECPS wouldn't have 
been as successful. And I think in other cities, that's the case as well. I think, you know, I think what we're seeing in the Deep South and how that's how that aligned is still very much in the embryonic stage. Uh, but it's going in a positive direction. You know, for example, the JCAC, um, you know, more, you know, we have a good amount of rank and file union members from um, rank and file teachers uh, to uh, to electricians and other folks. You know, I, I think we have a, um, a that perspective, I think, in terms of c- connecting the national liberation movement with organized labor, I think is a little bit more acute due to, um, you know, you have less organization in the Deep South. Therefore, everyone tends to know each other a little bit more and it kind of overlaps. Um, so, you know, there is there is a strong overlap I see within um, a lot of the community organizing that we're a part of, at least here in Jacksonville, with folks who are also a part of organized labor. It's just really the issue is the general weakness of organized labor in the Deep South due to the fact that all the different repressive laws and the repressive conditions um, lends itself to this kind of uh, atomization of movements in which folks don't come together as much, you know, and um, the labor movement and the, and the black liberation movement um, aren't as connected historically as in other places. But I think we are seeing a huge, we are seeing a shift towards that relationship changing. And I think that's particularly the role of the alliance, you know, uh, or alliance branches. I think, I think we're seeing that change just because we've been conscious as the Jacksonville Community Action Committee towards reaching out to um, union members or towards reaching out um, as union members um, to our coworkers and to going to our labor council meetings and talking about the community events we're having, you know, inviting, you know, um, letter carriers that we're seeing at the labor council to our rallies and seeing, you know, letting them speak. And you no, know, I, th- I think it has to start like that. You know, it all starts with an invitation. It all starts with an invite. And is and all of it's, uh, you know, in terms of the practical aspect of it, it's all a work in progress. You know what I'm saying? And it's all um, figuring out what works, you know, what issues that we can work together on and get folks at the Labor Council to an event and stuff like that. But I think it's moving in a great direction, mainly because we all need each other, you know, and I think us being isolated particularly when the conditions are as rough as they are, it makes no sense for us uh, strategically. Okay, that, that makes sense. So let, let me ask you this, uh, so going a little bit uh, different direction as well, but uh, if I'm, okay, so I'm a Fight Back Radio listener, and um, uh, either I'm a part of a, an organization or uh, or I'm, I'm not, and I, I'm, I'm liking what Michael Sampson is saying here on, on Fight Back Radio, um, if I want to, you know, find out if there's a chapter in, in my city to join, or if I want to, if I have my organization affiliate, or even if I'm all alone, if I want to start organizing but don't know where to start, uh, could you give a, uh, could you give somebody a little direction, or what would you advise a person like that to do? Not for sure. I would definitely advise them to go to our website www.narpa.org. Um, we have a link on there for which you can reach out to us. Um, we'll put that in the show notes too for people. So go ahead. I'm sorry. We have a social media page on Facebook, National Alliance, on Instagram, National Alliance, Twitter. Um, well, formerly X now. Whatever. That's so weird. Uh, it's still, it's still Twitter to me, but, um, yep. <laughs> contact us on there. Um, we're always looking for, um, different organizations and folks that want to start a branch or a, in your, in your, uh, chapter. In your city, or if you have an organization that you want to affiliate with NARPA, you know, we want to work with everyone and um, we want to grow and be in various cities to really move together in a great direction for black liberation and for community control of the police. So, you know, reach out to us through those mediums and we'd love to talk to you. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Uh, let me also ask you, I know, I know you're a, a relatively new father. Congratulations. Uh, and uh, um, so I mean, what's your hope for your uh, for your daughter, I believe, right? And uh, um, what's your hope, uh, you know, for her, you know, uh, uh, growing up? And uh, uh, I mean, you're fighting these battles uh, um, for, you know, a just society. 
And uh, what what are your hopes for her? Uh, I have a lot of hopes for her. I, 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 you know, I, you know, obviously, you know, the main thing, hope for health, uh, and you know, health and happiness. You know, um, children are amazing, and it's like a switch goes off when you have them. So I, I'm very, you know, blessed to have that. Um, you know, hope for a better society that she doesn't have to deal with the same BS that we have to deal with. I mean. Um, that's what every generation wants for the future generation. At the end of the day, you know, you don't have to deal with the same drama and crap that we deal with. And, you know, I love her. I want her to be happy. I don't want her to feel any pain or any strife. Therefore, let's get rid of, uh, uh, capitalism and white supremacy. You know, it causes pain and strife. Let's get rid of that. Uh, okay. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I want her to have the freedom to be who she wants to be. And I think, you know, the issue is most, you know, most oppressed people, you know, don't have the freedom to grow up without the fear of uh, um, not being who they want or the fear of getting pulled over or the fear of getting profiled or judged and whatnot. And that's a society that we live in, um, but that's a society that we want to change. And, you know, I think uh, I hope the the best for her future. And, you know, obviously I hope she becomes an activist and, uh, you know, a taller the you know, the, the Tyler, the the general commerce, I don't know, whatever. Tyler, the, the leader, you know, uh, Tyler, the the congresswoman or something. I don't know, whatever she wants to do, I hope she can do it. Um, you know, I think that influences a lot of us, the future generations. And I didn't fully understand it till I had children. And I'm, you know, very blessed to have understood. That's that's nice. That's nice. Um, unfortunately, we're running out of time here. And so uh, I want to give you an opportunity before we uh, sign off. If there's anything that uh, we haven't said here or anything we want you want to cover or um, if you want to tell people, you've already told us how to reach uh, you know, the, um, the alliance. But uh, you know, anything you want to say uh, in uh, closing remarks? No, I mean, you know, I was happy to be on. I was, you know, big fan of Fight Back Radio, as I've said. Um, you know, you know, for those listening who want to learn more about NARPA, go to our website, narpa.org, social media, NARPA, interested in learning about Jacksonville, um, and the work we're doing with the Jacksonville Community Action Committee. Our website is jackstakesaction.org. You can contact us at jackscommunityaction at gmail.com. And we're on Instagram, X, and Facebook at jackstakesaction. So follow us there. Um, and yeah, free Palestine all the way. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, I believe that we will win. I think I'll keep it at that. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Michael Sampson, uh, the national co-chair of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression and the executive director of the Jacksonville Community Action Committee. Thank you for being our guest on Fight Back Radio. All right. Thank you, Richard. So I encourage you to you know follow Michael's uh, you know words there and uh, get in contact w- with uh, the uh, National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, and we'll put that in the show notes to tell you how you can do that. Um, also, I want to remind people to go to a, a march or a program or whatever for the the Palestinian people and to support their resistance, which is uh, so critical right now. Um, also, I, uh, I wanted to bring up that the. Uh, the Filipinos, we've put this in the show notes too, are uh, going to be having, a, uh, you know, this weekend are going to be having a, a, a counter conference to APEC um, in uh, San Francisco. So these are things that if you're in the Bay Area, you should check that out. But uh, it, it's, it's not hard to get involved now. There's uh, repression everywhere, unfortunately, but there's resistance everywhere, fortunately. So we want you to get involved in that. Um, also, you know, tell us uh, how you like Fight Back Radio. Um, I, I should say this. I, I, you know, so many people, I was at the Alliance Convention. Then after that, I left and I went to the Teamsters for a Democratic Union Convention. Um, in the last few days, so many people have uh, come up to me and tell me how much they appreciate and enjoy Fight Back Radio. And it makes me feel good. So I, I thank you all for that. And it was good to hear you know, people's comments on uh, what they thought was good or not good about it. But I encourage you to uh, to send us uh, an email at richard.fightbackradio at gmail.com. And uh, tell us what you think. You know, who would be a good guest? What would be better? What would make the show better? 
Uh, we appreciate all those things and uh, and give us uh, you know five stars or a thumbs up and uh, tell others about it because that's that's how we get the word out. Um, so uh, I, you know, I really appreciate though all the kind words that uh, people have given us and uh, given me in the recent past, and um, I take them in. But uh, also, I know that uh, our production team. Uh, is what makes this all sound good and all makes this all happen. So I want to thank them as well. Uh, Vince Olson, uh, Shane Tremley, Dodd McColgan, McColgan, and Natalie Pranis. Uh, and so I'm Richard Berg for the entire Fightback Radio team saying until next time, all power to the people. <laughs>